Calvary. Welcome to Sunday School. Today's a review day in most of the classes, but, or, and also it is in a way a review for us today. We're going to be reviewing and expanding on some ideas that we've begun to discuss in previous lessons as we consider today's topic, New Testament attacks. Before we get to that, let's review more specifically what we talked about last week. Last week, we outlined the life of Christ. Christ's first coming divides into three main parts. His preparation for ministry, the ministry itself, the three-and-a-half-year ministry, and then the culmination of that ministry uh, at the end of his life and at the end of his time on earth. Using Dr. Keith's, Dr. Keith Essex's Harmony of the Gospels, we broke down these three main phases of Christ's ministry into nine specific points, nine points of a timeline. It begins with Jesus' birth around 6 to 4 B.C., and his growing up, and then his baptism and temptation, which take place shortly before his ministry begins, probably around A.D. 25 to 26. First year of his ministry, or the first phase of Jesus' ministry, is uh, one of obscurity. There's a year of obscurity, followed by a year of public favor, and then finally a year of opposition. His ministry culminates with the Passion Week, probably taking place about A.D. 28 to 29. the end of the Passion Week, Jesus is crucified. But our eighth point on the timeline, he also rises again and appears to his disciples. There's 40 more days on earth and then his ascension. And there we have it. We have the life of Christ. But back to today's topic. Like many other parts of the Bible, the New Testament is under constant attack today from skeptics, and liberal pastors, scholars, and theologians. By the way, when I say liberal or when Christians refer to liberal theologians, they don't mean liberal in a political viewpoint, but actually a theological one. A theologically liberal Christian is basically someone who claims to be a Christian but doesn't believe the Bible. You might wonder, how is that possible? How can you be a Christian and not believe the Bible? But that's what liberal Christianity is. It's not it's not really a, a foundation to stand on at that point, but they, they try. Anyway, skeptics and liberals often attack the New Testament with claims like the following. Here's one. Books of the New Testament were not written by who they say they were. The authors were either not the original apostles or their associates, or if they were, the documents have been heavily edited by later Christians. So really, it's a multiplicity of authors. And if you really want to get back to the original author, apostle, or apostolic tradition, you need to be a highly trained scholar. And it's not possible for a regular layman to do. So there's one criticism. Another one would be something like this. Uh, this is similar. The books of the New Testament were written long after the fact of the, the events of Jesus' life. Christians were recording the traditions of the apostles rather than the apostles writing themselves. And really, Christianity only gradually understood itself and its message, with competing versions of Christianity interacting with each other in the first few centuries. It's only three or four hundred years after Christ that Christians decided what they really wanted Christianity to be. A third claim. Because the New Testament was copied over and over again since its original ancient composition, we don't have the originals, we only have the copies, and there have been so many years of these copies and so many copies that thousands of errors must have 
crept in and corrupted the text. You can't trust the New Testament since it was basically created by a game of telephone, one person only getting partially what the previous person said. So we can't really trust the copies of the New Testament or the versions that we have today. And then one more example, another claim against the New Testament. New Testament canon was created by Constantine and other church leaders at the Council of Nicaea in AD 325. Those leaders really weren't trying to determine what was the word of God. They simply were trying to create a religious tradition that served their own interests and allowed them to keep their positions of power. Therefore, false scriptures might have been included in the New Testament, while true scriptures may have been left out, probably were left out. That is, if there really is such a thing as true scripture. So perhaps you've heard claims like these before. Of course, they're completely false. And even in our past five lessons, we've seen some of the reasons why these claims are false. But let's hear now another defense of the trustworthiness of the New Testament from Answers in Genesis. In the first half of today's class, we're going to watch a 35-minute video clip from a lecture given by Brian Edwards. Brian Edwards is a Christian writer, lecturer, and apologist, and he did a special presentation for Answers in Genesis. This clip is from a longer video called Why 66? Why the 66 books of the Bible? We're only going to look at the section that deals with the New Testament, Why 27? Why are there only 27 books of the New Testament? How were those 27 determined? Why weren't others included? And why should we trust those that were? Edwards is going to give us some answers. Now, if you'd like to take notes on this video presentation, you can follow the headings or the points that are now up on the screen. These are the points that he's going to be talking about in his video. As you listen to this 35-minute presentation, you'll notice that Edward says many of the same things that I've already shared with you. But he also shares some concepts and details that I wasn't able to share with you, either going more deeply or mentioning some things that we didn't get to. So in many ways, this video will be a review, but in other ways, it will be new. Now, we're actually going to play the video at Calvary, so I, I'll, I think I'll still be connected, but I won't be doing anything. I'll just be listening along with you, and I'll come back and say some things after we watch the video. By the way, this is only for the first half of class. In the second half of class, we're going to do an activity related to something that we hear in the video. All right. So, Andrew, people in the sound booth, I think we're ready to start the clip. All right. Thank you. We can transition back to the regular... Screen? All right, are we back? All right, thanks. All right, so pretty thorough treatment from Edwards on New Testament canonicity. Hopefully, as you've seen, hopefully you've seen after watching that video and hearing him speak that the claims and attacks the, of the New Testament, so many of these claims that we hear have absolutely no basis in reality. Some questions and Objections are based off of genuine misunderstanding, but the majority of the time, as he was even explaining in the beginning, these attacks and these criticisms, they're based not on truth, not on facts, not on reality, but just on that desire of man to suppress the truth, want to ignore the truth, want to explain away God, and want to live our own way. And so things, myths get propagated. Truly, there are more than sufficient answers to the 
critical objections and claims that we hear. So we need not be destabilized as we choose to stand firmly on God's word. Uh, if you have questions about the video, please uh, talk to me afterwards. Email me afterwards. He does make the claim, or it's a little bit ambiguous at the beginning of the video, whether he believes that all the books of the Bible were written, the New Testament were written before AD 70. Not, we, we wouldn't take that position at this church. Some Christians do take that position, but um, just wanted to mention that. Now, Edwards mentions in the video, and this we're going to transition now to the second part of our class, uh, an activity. Edward mentions in the video that early Christians examined various documents that presented themselves as scripture, but were actually not. These Christians were often able to quickly and confidently dismiss such works as pseudepigrapha, that is, false writings, fake writings. How did they do it? How were they able to study and reject these works so quickly? Well, let's try it out ourselves. We're going to actually look at some of the uh, two works, two excerpts from two works that did not make it into the New Testament canon. And let's see if we can see what our spiritual forefathers saw. The first excerpt that I want us to look at is from the Infancy Gospel of Thomas. Note that this Infancy Gospel of Thomas is different from the Gospel of Thomas, which is another pseudepigraphal work. Who was Thomas? Uh, the, this Thomas is um, not super explicitly identified, but if you're going to be writing supposed New Testament scripture, then you're probably referring to an apostle or an apostolic associate. Do we know anybody like that named Thomas? I don't believe he was a brother of Jesus, but he was one of the disciples, and we do think of him as doubting Thomas. He's one of the original 12 disciples, which, of course, is a little bit unfair of a term because all the disciples had trouble believing uh, after Jesus' resurrection. But yes, Thomas was one of the apostles. And if you're going to write Pseudepigrapha, Thomas, since he didn't write any of the New Testament, might be a good one to choose. But maybe Thomas did write this. Maybe this is apostolic, and we just are missing it in our Bibles. Well, let's actually read this text and see if, <laughs> let's see if we notice anything that stands out. Here's a little from the Infancy Gospel of Thomas. I, Thomas, the Israelite, tell unto you, even all the brethren that are of the Gentiles, to make known unto you the works of the childhood of our Lord Jesus Christ and his mighty deeds, even all that he did when he was born in our land, whereof the beginning is thus. He mentions a little bit, and then he goes on another section. After that, again, he went through the village, and a child ran and dashed against his shoulder. And Jesus was provoked and said unto him, Thou shalt not finish thy course. And immediately he fell down and died. But certain when they saw what was done, uh, when they saw what was done, said, Whence was this young child born? For that every word of his is an accomplished work. And the parents of him that was dead came unto Joseph and blamed him, saying, Thou that hast such a child canst not dwell with us in the village, or do thou teach him to bless and not to curse, for he slayeth our children. Okay, uh, does something stick out to you from this narrative as being inconsistent with the writings of the New Testament? Yes, something should. What is it? Yeah, Rob. (laughs) 
Yeah, that's true. Uh, yeah, certainly the attitude towards children, as displayed by Jesus here, is very different. Though remember, Jesus is supposed to be a child himself at this point. But yeah, the fact that Jesus kills a kid here is pretty significant. And we could point to a number of sections of the, the New Testament and even the whole Bible to say this is not consistent. This is contradictory. Uh, I'll, I'll go through this quickly since we're running a little bit short on time. But Jesus was sinless. And this sure looks like a sinful vengeful selfish act he runs into jesus and jesus is going to kill him pronounce a curse that kills him second corinthians five twenty one says he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf jesus can't sin even as a child and we know from the sermon on the mount jesus specifically taught about not taking vengeance even when you've been genuinely wronged matthew five thirty nine to 38 you have heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth but I say to you, do not resist an evil person. Whoever slaps you on one right cheek, turn the other to him also. Isaiah 53, 7 also says that he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. <laughs> That's the opposite of what we see in this supposed gospel. He gets bumped and opens his mouth and kills a kid. We could say more. Jesus never hurt anyone in the Gospels, save perhaps when he made a whip of cords and cleansed the temple. Though one could argue that the whip was actually for the animals and not for people. We don't see Jesus doing this kind of thing anywhere else. Even We don't even see Jesus performing an act of judgment at all in the Gospels. He warns of judgment, but he never actually causes judgment to come during his first advent. And when the disciples offered to judge on his behalf, do you want us to call down fire from heaven? Remember what Jesus did. He rebuked them. He says that's not, or probably not explicitly um, given what he said. There's some debate about the particular verse there. But he, he rebukes his disciples. That's not what he was intending to do. So just even from this one excerpt, you can see how relatively easy it is to reject this gospel as false. To Point to, to just totally uh, get rid of it. I don't even need to read the rest of the work to recognize it's fake. It's spurious. This wasn't from God, and this isn't from Thomas. Let's look at another example. This one you might have heard of, the Gospel of Judas. Judas has always enjoyed a certain popularity as an antihero. I'm talking about Judas Iscariot now. But maybe we got it all wrong. Maybe Judas was a Gospel writer too. Well, let's see what the Gospel of Judas says. Got two slides here. This is what supposedly Judas wrote. One day he, as Jesus, was with his disciples in Judea, and he found them gathered together and seated in pious observance. When he approached his disciples and gathered together and seated, and he approached his disciples, gathered together and seated and offering a prayer of thanksgiving over the bread, he laughed. The disciples said to him, Master, why are you laughing at our prayer of thanksgiving? What we have done, or we have done what is right. He answered and said to them, I'm not laughing at you. You are not doing this because of your own will, but because it is through this that your God will be praised. They said, Master, you are the son of God. Jesus said to them, how do you know me? Truly, I say to you, no generation of the people that are among you will know me. When his disciples heard this, they started getting angry and infuriated and began blaspheming against him in their hearts. When Jesus observed their lack of understanding, he said to them, why has this agitation led you to anger? Your God, who is within you, and have provoked you to anger within your souls. 
Let any one of you who is strong enough among human beings bring out the perfect human and stand before my face. They all said, we have the strength, but their spirits did not dare to stand before him, except for Judas Iscariot. He was able to stand before him, but he could not look him in the eyes, and he turned his face away. Judas said to him, I know who you are and where you have come from. You are from the immortal realm of Barbilo, and I am not worthy to utter the name of the one who has sent you. Okay, so there are a number of things in this passage that are a little, little off. You may notice that the style of the passage, though, some of the language is very similar to what we hear in the Gospels. Nevertheless, there are a number of elements here that are just very off. And again, I'll go through this quickly myself since we're short on time. We see Jesus laughing at his disciples, especially when they're praying. That's totally inconsistent with the rest of the New Testament. Jesus actually is never recorded as laughing at all in the New Testament, nor does he rebuke or mock truly righteous works. We see the disciples getting angry at Jesus and blaspheming him in their hearts. This again, we never hear this kind of description in the Gospels. The Pharisees blaspheme Jesus, some of the scribes blaspheme Jesus in their hearts or in their words, but the disciples never get angry at him. Not even Judas is recorded as feeling any type of anger or blasphemous thought against Jesus. We have this weird reference to our God. The disciples say our God, and Jesus refers to your God, speaking to the disciples, as if they weren't the same. Again, this is not something we see in the Gospels. Jesus does use the phrase your God one time in John 20, verse 17, but that's when he's speaking to Mary Magdalene using the phrase my God and your God. So we don't have that weird distinction in other New Testament works. But probably the two greatest inconsistencies here is that Judas is portrayed as a great and most worthy person. He's even implied here to be the perfect human that Jesus is supposedly asking for. Now, this is the opposite of what we see in the Gospels, where Jesus is clearly described as a thief, one who pilfered the money box that the disciples had. He's the betrayer of Jesus, and he killed himself because he felt so guilty over his sins. This is not the perfect human. And then we have this reference to the realm of Barbilo. What is that about? What is that about? How is Jesus supposed to be from there? Certainly, we never hear that term in other parts of the Bible. And there's a very good reason for that, because it comes from a form of Gnostic Christianity. Barbilo is a title that the Gnostics use to describe the first emanation of God. God has multiple emanations. Barbilo was a female male god from whom all the other gods came into the world. Gnostic Christianity, if we can even call it Christianity, featured a pantheon of gods. And we have a reference to one of those gods here. So this book gets out of control pretty quickly. And again, we don't really need to read any more to do the same thing that the early church Christians did, which is reject this as spurious. This is not apostolic. This is not divine. This is not scripture. This doesn't fit at all. Both of these works, the Infancy Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Judas, were relatively early. Both are mentioned by Irenaeus, the same Irenaeus you just heard about, by A.D. 180. So they were around. But they were both false writings, easily seen by the early church to be false. And we can see why. Now, we've only looked at two of these pseudepigrapha. 
But the process we went through is really the same process that all early Christians went through when they scrutinized the different texts to discern what really came from the apostles and what did not. Therefore, again, there really is nothing to the claim that the New Testament was composed arbitrarily, that some works got left out and some works got put in for no good reason. We can say with confidence that the only, <clears throat> we can say with confidence that the New Testament is only the 27 books that we recognize today. God graciously preserved this testament for us so that we too, like those who first heard it, have repent, believe, and follow the one true God, the one and only God. Now, one question you might have regarding all of this, these false gospels and such is, why? Why create false gospels, try to disseminate them, if you, the author, know that it's false? This is a good question. It's a hard one to answer. We can't know for sure why people did what they did. We can suggest some reasons. Ultimately, it comes down to one of two mindsets. They either knew it was false, and they were trying to deceive and exploit others, others who might believe what they wrote, or they somehow convinced themselves that what they wrote was not false. Either they were bringing together some religious tradition they heard and combining it with Christianity, true Christianity. They wanted it to be true so badly that they believed it was true. They had some sort of experience or dream or imaginative or some sort of a, what they thought was a vision and therefore recorded it. We don't know. They probably thought that they were writing something that was somehow true. Or maybe it was demonic demonically inspired. We know certainly indirectly demons were involved. Satan hates the truth. He always wants to confuse and suppress God's truth. And so that probably had a role in the creation of these false works. But whatever the reason for these originally being created, we can praise the Lord that his word is what triumphs. Despite efforts to confuse, suppress, and destroy God's word, his promise has its fulfillment. Heaven and earth will pass away but our Lord's word will never pass away. Okay, that got through everything that I was looking to get through. Any quick questions before we close? Yeah, Rob. Yeah, yeah, I, I totally agree with you, Rob. When we just ambiguously or amorphously like, yeah, there were writings that were rejected because people didn't know they were scripture. It's really helpful to actually look at these things that didn't make it in because you're like, oh, well, obviously there's a clear difference between those things that that are scripture and are not. And it doesn't take a, a scholar or um, someone who's been initiated in some special way to recognize the difference. Totally. If you have other questions, definitely email me or talk to me. We're going to wind down now. What is the takeaway from today's lesson? Well, we see again that God's word is trustworthy. It not only can be believed, but it must be believed. The Old and New Testaments form a book unlike any other book. Divine, inerrant, sufficient, authoritative Bible. We must pay attention to this word, or as Hebrew says, we risk bringing sorrow and judgment on ourselves. The world will continue to bring its attacks and assert its falsehoods, against the Bible in order to confirm their own sinful way. But we do have the answers to their attacks. More than that, we have the answer to their fundamental problem, their destructive unbelief in self-righteousness. And that answer is 
the good news of salvation in Jesus. By faith alone, believing in what he's accomplished on behalf of sinful men, that they might be saved by his righteousness. That is the word that we share, and that is the word that we are to be ready to share. Next week, we begin looking at the birth narrative of Jesus as we see how it connects with Old Testament prophecy. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this time. Thank you for the confidence we have in your word, and thank you that you have orchestrated the events of history and in the preservation of your gospel so that we can believe it today. Help us to be uh, diligent to share it, bold, give us a love for people, and give us, um, give us great confidence in your word, as we have so much warrant for, so that we can, uh, so that we can declare it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, see you next week. You're welcome.